This is the Monday, May 30th, 2016 Memorial Day episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, we're going to cast our eyes back at how we memorialize wars, tragedies, and outrages of the past. This is a delicate but important topic. I feel we owe it to people who've lost their lives to get this right. How do we appropriately and honestly mark something like a terrorist attack or a controversial war, or average people who lose their lives in some other terrible way. After all, when you're going to cast history in stone, bronze, and steel, when you're going to start pouring concrete into molds, you want to get it right. We owe that not only to the people who are gone, but to the people who come tomorrow in history. When they look back, we want to tell them what happened. Why did this matter so much to us? Here to discuss this topic is Harriet F. Senny, author of Memorials to Shattered Myths, Vietnam to 9-11. Professor Senny is director of the MA program in Art History and Museum Studies at City College. That's our own City College of New York, as well as a professor at the Cooney Graduate Center. She's the author of several books and articles on public art, and co-founder of the International Public Art Dialogue Organization, as well as a co-editor of its journal, Public Art Dialogue. You can check them out at publicartdialogue.org and visit our guest's website, harrietfsenny.com. Her last name is spelled S-E-N-I-E. Okay, now that we've chosen our piece of marble and we've thought a little bit about art, let's talk about Memorials to Shattered Myths. I'm joined on the line by Professor Harriet F. Senny, author of Memorials to Shattered Myths. Thank you for taking the time to talk with the History Author Show today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. When I picked up this book, it struck a chord with me, questions that I didn't even know that I was formulating in my head. And it's the idea of how we build memorials. It's something that's kind of gnawed at me. And it's an odd question because you feel a little bit guilty questioning it because I don't think we go out of our way to be uncomfortable enough. I don't think we really search it. I'll just speak for myself so I don't sound condescending. But ever since I worked in cable news during these big stories like Columbine High School, the massacre, I find our focus very quickly shifts away to how we're going to start making monuments. We didn't have 
Facebook back then at the time of Columbine, but certainly we see all of that very much in outpouring of emotion on Facebook, and that's sort of the first draft of history. But then when we get to pouring concrete, and that's what people are going to look at in future generations, the actual bloodshed that led to it almost seems like an afterthought. In fact, it very much seems like an afterthought when I'm reading Memorials to Shattered Myths here and the way you describe these and how they then completely shift what really happened. So what do you think we're getting wrong? What inspired you to write this book? Well, several things inspired me to write the book. One had to do with the fact that I grew up in a family of Holocaust survivors where family members had been killed, although my parents themselves were not in camps. They managed to escape. But most of their friends shared this history, and they never self-identified as victims. They were incredibly jovial in most of the social events that I recall, very happy to be here in this country. And so when suddenly this conversation about victims as heroes or victims being treated as heroes in the events like Oklahoma City, Columbine, and 9-11 began to emerge, it took me aback because it so contradicted my experience, my own personal experience. So that, I think, drove a lot of the purpose of the research, this kind of conflation of heroes and victims that made no sense to me. I think the other things that drove me to write it on a professional level occurred when I was completing an earlier book on the controversy around Richard Serra's Tilted Ark in New York City that was removed by the DSA General Services Administration that had commissioned it. And there was so much toxic conversation about this. People were so violently against it for a number of what seemed to me rather rational reasons that I thought, I need a break. I'm going to go to a memorial that everybody seems to like or a sculpture. I didn't then make the distinction. And I went to see Myelin's Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And of course, that's a very much appreciated and much visited memorial. And I found out a short time afterwards that she was very influenced by Richard Serra's work. He had been teaching at Yale when she was a student there. And then I began to look at the way people behaved at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. I was very influenced by Kirk Savage's writings about calling it a therapeutic memorial. And that put the idea of a shift in purpose to our memorials, to the ones that I write about. And I think, you know, those aspects really drove me to pursue this book. You mentioned your parents in the acknowledgments of the book, Ernest and Gerda Freitag. Did I get that right? Freitag, like ah. Friday. It means Friday <laughs> in German. Oh, all right. And they get out just in time and I found the idea of the Holocaust being used as a unit of measurement 
a thought that had never occurred to me either before. We tend to, you said, bring Holocaust survivors even to something like the Oklahoma City bombing, where they there's no connection and there's obviously a huge disparity in what has happened there and in the atrocity. And you say we've kind of Americanized the Holocaust. We've brought that home. And so what do you think when you walk into the Holocaust Museum? Do you think that they get it right? What can we learn from that? Do they get it right? I'd like to preface this by saying I haven't been there in a while. But as I recall, they, let's say, compared to the museum in Oklahoma City, which was um, acknowledged to be very influenced by it, they complicate the story. I think the part of the Holocaust Museum in D.C. that's problematic are the cards that that you get, if you choose to take one, when you come in so that you identify with a single person who was killed and you're able to follow their story through the passage of the museum, I don't believe that's necessary. I think people could do that on their own. And I think that 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 slight detail, although as I said, it's a choice, um, turns it a little bit into a theme park experience where the rest of the museum definitely does not. I think the architecture is very powerful. I think the various displays are very powerful. And people are obviously moved. This is the exact kind of thing that I wanted to discuss with you and why I'm happy that you came on to discuss Memorials to Shattered Myths because I never would have thought of that before, but you mentioned the theme park aspect. I would have thought it was a really good idea to identify with a victim, but when you think about it, even though when you read through the booklets for people who haven't been there and you read through the stages of your person's life, some of them may perish, some of them may survive, but when you walk out of there, you survive. So I I don't know how much of that maybe that you carry with you when you leave out. It might almost be a little counterproductive, although, you know, it is very moving overall. We owe it even more so, I think, to people who are legitimate victims or who are killed in these to get the story right, to not tell sort of this distorted view of them. It came as a real surprise to me that the Holocaust was directly related to the four memorials that I discuss. It was approved at the same time that the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was approved. The man who wrote the book about the Holocaust Museum went on to write the book about Oklahoma City directly thereafter and brought that lesson with him. The Columbine shootings took place on the birthday of Adolf Hitler, and the director of the 9-11 Museum was previously the director of the Holocaust Museum. So that link, if you will, that kind of almost shadow of the Holocaust, in a way, does loom over all of these memorials. Your dust jacket on Memorials to Shattered Myths says that the book looks at a new paradigm, quote, which grants a heroic status to victims and, by extension, their families, thereby creating a class of privileged participants in the permanent memorial process, unquote. We were just talking a little bit about how this is almost an industry, not that these people, I'm sure, aren't sincere in how they feel, but when you think you have multiple books in your resume and maybe multiple museums, that seems like a strange thing to me anyway. So give us some historical perspective here on the people that are building these memorials and why you think that having the immediacy of family involved is a little counterproductive? Well, first of all, I think we need to look at the events 
that were commemorating in this way. And I focused specifically on events that shattered myths of national identity. So there might be an underlying, or we could say unconscious, drive to resist identifying these myths. So Vietnam showed that this was a war the country didn't win. Oklahoma City bombing showed that the heartland was not quintessentially safe. Columbine, among other things, showed that high school experience in a comfortably off middle-class-plus neighborhood was not an idyllic time. And the bombing of the World Trade Center on 9-11 shattered so many myths, it's hard to enumerate them all. But I suppose primarily that we were not safe at the center of our economic power, if you will. These are a very unique type of memorial. It's not like a war memorial, which Vietnam was, but that was, as we know, such a complicated war, it wasn't even declared. War memorials tend to be more overtly heroic in their expression. And I think that's, in a way, what motivates some. We need heroes. The minute these events take place, and here I'm talking about Oklahoma City, Columbine, and 9-11, we're looking for heroes. Oklahoma City, I imagine everyone is already thinking about the firefighter holding the dead baby. Columbine was a search for heroes right away, or in that case, heroines, who emerged, who didn't even do what people ascribed to them, as in declaring their faith when they were asked by the shooters whether or not they believed. These things were later refuted, but nevertheless, these young girls remained as kind of heroic martyrs to that story. And 9-11, it appeared to be firefighters in general who emerged in this way. So we want there to be heroes, definitely, and undoubtedly many people who perished behaved heroically. But the people who perished, for the most part, had just gone to work or gone to school as they might on any other day. So for us to heroicize them creates a new kind of paradigm, one where I suggest we've conflated cemeteries where mourning is personal with public memorials, which should take a longer view. So that's one part. The other part is in thinking and rethinking about the memorial process, I began to view it as a tripartite enterprise. One, the immediate memorials, which are mostly called spontaneous memorials, when people rush to the site where an unexpected death like these have occurred, and they bring flowers and teddy bears and cards and what have you. But then there's a period in time after the immediate memorial and before the permanent memorial can be commissioned or built where a local community needs something. And it seems to me that the victim's families and close friends should be the ones to determine what that is. They know what they need and the process of determining that and seeing it realized can also be therapeutic. I don't believe that in the aftermath of sudden death, one can take a longer view. I don't believe that's emotionally possible. It's difficult just to get through the day. The victim's families could certainly serve in an advisory capacity, perhaps have some votes, 
but that building a permanent memorial needs to be a larger undertaking with considerable professional input. I get from reading the book that this is not you saying as somebody who understands art and admires and works in public art that this is my turf, so to speak, and these family members need to get out. No. You do think that they have a role to play, absolutely. But when somebody passes away, I think any one of us want to build a giant memorial to them if we love them, and we may not always do the right thing. How many people do you know that say, I mortgaged everything on a casket for my late mother or father, and well, why did I do that when I think of it after? Because it's just going to sit in the ground. I mean, it's a rough thing to think to break it down to the dollars and cents, but you say, was that really what I wanted to do? Was that the best way maybe to honor their memory? And the other point is that it's really counterproductive because when you change the narrative, when you change what really happened, these commemorations gain an entirely different message as time passes. You mentioned that some of these commemorations have a carnival atmosphere. You were describing Oklahoma City. I think it was the 10-year anniversary the in the 10th book. anniversary. I, I would just like to interject a personal note. My husband died during the period that I was finishing this book. So I was very much aware, I have served on memorial committees myself, so I, I know a little bit of the process. I would not have accepted any invitation to serve on such a committee during that period of intense mourning. And that's not even dealing with the family members who had to deal with sudden unexpected death. That's also a much more intense and disorienting experience, although all death is that, that when somebody dies who's ill. Well, my condolences on your husband. I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. Thank you. He's acknowledged okay. in the book. He was a big part of all my books, in fact. But I just wanted to say that also that observation came from a personal experience as well. So I decided to visit Oklahoma City and Columbine on the 10th anniversaries because I wanted to see how the memories of these tragedies had been memorialized and or institutionalized. And visiting Oklahoma City, there was such a range of celebrations culminating, or one part of it being a race, a marathon, that it forced me to stop and think about what what's really going on here. Um, the narrative in the Oklahoma City National Museum ends on a note of triumph. And so the narrative becomes the way we, or local communities, and um, Oklahoma City, because it was a federal building, has national money and national implications, how we triumph over these dreadful events. But that is not the story. The story should be, why did these events happen? What can we learn from them? They didn't happen in a vacuum, and we can't get a sense of that by never mentioning or rarely mentioning the perpetrators and not considering the circumstances that caused these very tragic deaths. We lose the words that relate to what happened. When I hear people describe 9-11 as a tragedy, it was really an, an atrocity. It was really a horrible thing, exactly. but to just generally play it down. And when you watch the anniversaries, you say, if I landed here from Mars, I would have no idea what happened. 
They just talk about the towers fell down. They talk about when they came down. They use a lot of these euphemisms. I had relatives come in for my wedding, which was not long after 9-11. That was 12 years ago. So just a few years after when I got married. And they talked about taking in ground zero. And I said, this is not, <laughs> it's not, you know, but it's just because we use these euphemisms to exactly. sort of block it, you know, and for me, I watched the Twin Towers burn out my kitchen window in Hoboken. I could see the tops of them out, out the window. And even at the time, I I wanted to close the window because you could smell the smoke and there were business cards blowing in and mm-hmm. you know, it was it was terrible. And I said, I'm not going to close it because I just wanted to not shut it out. I'm not saying I'm some a great person, but then in years later, when you look at it, you say, maybe it's a little bit of wisdom to look at it and get a little bit of distance so that we don't immediately jump right over sort of to the denial phase and then just live there in that phase. So how can we avoid letting euphemisms like that, letting the fact when we have these survivor families there divert us from the real topic at hand? What would your advice be for when we sort of shift away from the family-inspired memorials, the ghost bikes or people leaving flowers to a more permanent piece of public art that will endure and do its job? Well, I think before we enter even into the specific commissioning, that there needs to be uh, rather widespread public conversations about what did this mean and why did it happen so that we can start from a premise of a kind of broader socio-political understanding. Now, in a way, that's easier to do in a smaller community, although people may not be willing to do that. I do think it needs to be a necessary part of the memorial process. I mean, everybody seemed to need after 9-11 to do something. I began to teach classes in memorials after 9-11. And I know that some of the conversations that we had in those classes were very, very useful and also brought a kind of, if you will, international perspective one graduate student began writing about memorials to the disappeared in Argentina, which eventually turned into a dissertation, but which also brought a very valuable perspective to different mourning rituals, different ways of commemoration. So I think we need to have a big conversation, a broadly based conversation, however that might be created or channeled. And then if we're to follow that tripartite division of responsibility in creating the built memorial, if we go into the process of creating a built memorial with a wider knowledge, with a contextual view, I think that we will get better memorials. There's also within the discussion of that process been some disagreement whether or not the competitions should be open whether or not specific architects and or artists should be invited to participate. I think both those things are possible. You can have an open competition as well as an invited one. But I think as much as we can be open and far-sighted in our approach, the better off we'll be. I would also like there to be the option in our memorial museums which we now seem committed to big buildings, to have a room at the end where people might have conversations, perhaps guided by a professional, 
about the meaning and ramifications of what it is they've seen and what occurred. I think that that would help. My guest is Professor Harriet F. Senny, author of Memorials to Shattered Myths, Vietnam to 9-11. You can visit her at harrietfsenny.com. Her last name is spelled S-E-N-I-E. Sally Webster, author of The Nation's First Monument and The Origins of the American Memorial Tradition, writes, quote, This richly informed account of recent memorials identifies a notable shift from honoring singular heroes to venerating the civilian loss of life. How this shift occurred and its national consequences are among the intriguing questions raised and answered in this landmark study. Harriet, I want to talk a little bit about that, about that shift. You start with the Vietnam War Memorial that you spoke about a little bit, but the World War I memorials you mentioned, those were sort of this shift to listing all the names because many soldiers never came back. They just were blown to pieces or lost. So why does it mark that shift and where are we now in building memorials? Well, it did become very important after World War I, as you say, to start naming the victims, the victims of war, those who died. And Maya Lin herself was influenced by a World War I memorial to the Battle of the Somme by Edward Lechens, which listed those who died according to the military group that they fought in and which has a cemetery, the same memorial has a cemetery of white, white crosses out back. And this was something that she studied in the funerary architecture class that she was taking at Yale at the time that she submitted her design proposal. So I think now we cannot build a memorial without noting those who perished to the extent that we have them. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, we really must honor the individuals who died, and we must understand on some visceral level the human cost. You write of our presidents and their reactions since this shift has taken place. People commonly call the presidents the comforter-in-chief, that kind of thing, and they compare and contrast how they do it. You mentioned President Clinton often said that the Oklahoma City bombing made us all Americans again. You give examples of his successor, George W. Bush, and his framing people's mourning for 9-11. We're in an election year, so we will be choosing a new commander-in-chief. What do you think is the appropriate role for a president when we're commemorating something like 9-11 or Columbine or the Oklahoma City bombing? Well, let me start by saying where I think that comment comes from and why in its own way it made us all Americans again, etc. That kind of remark refers to what I think is a very real occurrence, that in times of these tragic events, we do come together. We do experience a kind of communal way of being in the world that dissipates after time. In fact, there was an, a book by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell. The subtitle is The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. And she ends with a plea that we not forget that feeling. And I think that that's the important part of that message. But the message itself, if you stop to think about it, 
is somewhat ironic because it made us all Americans again also could suggest that it's being victims that made us all Americans again. And that's exactly not what was intended. So what can president say or what can any comforter in chief say? I think comfort is very, very important, but I think perhaps emphasizing at that moment the communal spirit that is present and that is admirable, coupled with a plea that we come together now and we stay together, that we not forget the feeling that links us all in these moments of disaster. That was very much a feeling on the streets of New York City, in the subways, everybody just going out of their way to be so nice to each other. And it lasted a couple of weeks. Now that you mention it, it would have been nice to try to hold on to a little bit of that a little bit longer. But then again, it's we all wanted to get back to normal, right? And that's... And we were told to do that. We were told to go out and shop. Yeah. Well, the the financial center taking a big hit like that. I mean, that that was such a different thing. And that's something that until you mention it, until I read the book, I didn't think of. We had things that we did have to do. And as you said, we were all feeling we had to go and do something. But in Memorials of Shattered Myths, you talk about how some of this anyway, can be a strategy of diversion and denial. And that occurred to me that denial is that first stage of grief. And I wanted to ask if you feel as far as designing art to commemorate something as giant and flashbulb memory, are we stunting the healing? Is it counterproductive here, this process of institutionalizing that denial with memorials that kind of rewrite history? You know, I think that that's a really interesting observation. I think I treat it a little bit differently, which is I think especially in the 9-11 Museum, what we do is create a reenactment of the moment of the bombing when everybody is in shock and we are all dealing with that immense loss. I also believe that the built memorial itself does the same thing with its movement downward, you know, the waterfalls leading you into what appears to be a bottomless pit, and also the roar of the water, which, as you were here for the bombings, it was very, very loud. Hmm. And reenactment in psychological terms just takes you over and over the same thing. And I think as long as we build reenactment into our memorials and museums, we are in fact doing precisely what you suggest. And that brings me to my next question, which is we talked about how monuments have become sort of like headstones, some of them, the Vietnam War Memorial one and how it's an important part of it. But there is a distinction that until I read your book, I didn't really think about. So tell us, how are these public memorials different or how is their job different from the job of a cemetery? Well, I think in general, if we just think about it, of course, there's got to be some overlap. We're mourning specific individuals who died, regardless of the circumstances. And some of the behaviors that are common at cemeteries have become common at public memorials. But cemeteries are private. We go there to mourn personal loss. And memorials especially memorials of this magnitude, should have, I believe, a larger focus. 
something that brings us back to why we are building a memorial specifically to the people who died during these circumstances, in these circumstances, rather than other tragedies. What does it mean to us as a country nationally? What do these events mean? Somewhere our memorials shouldn't incorporate the possibility of having that conversation. And I would suggest to you that the Vietnam Veterans Memorial does it through its site. And the people who built the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, the fund, insisted on choosing the site before they even got involved with choosing the memorial. So there it is on the National Mall between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial, making it a part, insisting that this is a part of our national history. When this was a war, as I'm sure you recall, many just wanted to forget. We call the National Mall our national front lawn. We've seen so many historic moments take place there, whether it was people protesting the Bonus Army after the First World War during the Depression or Martin Luther King Jr. Those things happen, and it occurs to me you wouldn't have a headstone on your front lawn. You might have a commemoration. You might have something of somebody that you loved, right? That's a good point. Now, you put it in the backyard <laughs> if you if you were going to put it anywhere. Yeah. And you also argue in the book, quote, if we stop treating victims as heroes, they would not be dishonored. And I think that that's an important point. But I'm sure that many people are sort of repelled by the, the notion of having a different idea for how we commemorate it. So have you gotten pushback from people? You know, I've gotten just the reverse. And it's really been surprising to me. I had a real concern about that because I just want to emphasize it was never my intention in any way to minimize the horror of the loss or the experience that the families underwent. There were two comments that really, really stuck with me and surprised me. One was a woman who said to me, I'm so glad you said that. My brother-in-law was just a banker who worked in Connecticut, and my sister's been having such a hard time trying to, you know, present him as a hero. She loved him, and he was a great guy. He wasn't a hero, and it's just a relief to hear you say that. We stunt that process. It doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't honor the people who have died and been murdered if we pretend that they went to work giving their lives willingly. They were killed, you know, and we should remember them like that. And I was like, well, thank you for telling me because I didn't anticipate that. But I could see now where it might be a burden to have your family members recast in a way that doesn't feel right to you. And the other one, and this was much more extreme, it was at a small talk that I gave at Columbia University where somebody afterwards said, why should these people be honored in any way more than my husband who died of a heart attack in his bed? Well, that really took me aback in a different way because it took me to the question of why do we build these memorials? Well, we build them because of the national significance of the events. And then we somehow eliminate the national significance from our memorials, which makes her question more pertinent. But it's interesting that the responses that I've gotten so far were not at all what I anticipated. It has to be also a lot of additional pressure and, and a burden. You're trying to deal with your feelings 
We see this with first ladies that have lost the president tragically, and they have to go on. Then they have to have a public face. And I imagine that the pressure to be involved with these public memorials, you may just want to be left alone. You may not want to feel, exactly. wow, I'm not doing enough for my husband who passed away or didn't pass away, was murdered. And you say, that was a personal tragedy for me, a personal loss. And I don't necessarily want to be getting calls all the time to come and talk about this or that memorial that would, that would claim him away from me, sort of, sort of create this heroic figure that you talk about in the book. One final question for you. I'm sure that people who hear about the book may disagree with some of your conclusions, had obviously my own thoughts, which I love about Memorials of Shattered Myths, because I think we owe it to people to think about them as they really were. But I wanted to give you the opportunity to make your pitch to everyone today. This isn't a book that maybe they would pick up just because they see it there. It's not light reading for the airplane. So why would you advise people to pick up Memorials to Shattered Myths? I would say that Vietnam, Oklahoma City, Columbine, and 9-11 have become part of our national history and memory, but our memorials discourage us from any understanding of why they occurred or what they might imply for the future. And I think we need to know that. But if I may, I would like to read you a comment that I got from the man who prepared the index for my book. He began by saying he doesn't usually write to authors when he prepares the index. He doesn't usually even read the book. He just creates the index. But he says, I wanted to tell you, I learned a great deal about American history and American public art from our past four decades about who decide to commemorate our tragedies and what these monuments say about what we want to hear and not hear about who we are as Americans. I don't think I could say it any better than that. <laughs> well, a perfect place to wrap it up. Harriet F. Senny, professor of art history, thank you for joining me today and making us think about the role we have in getting history right with memorials. We would like there to be a good telling of our time, and we have an obligation to the people of tomorrow to tell history the right way, get them off on the right foot. Best of luck very much with Memorials to Shattered Myths. Thanks so much, Dean. It's really been an interesting conversation. Again, the book is Memorials to Shattered Myths, Vietnam to 9-11. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even bookmark the URL of our Amazon.com banner ad right there on our homepage. Amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every purchase you make at no additional cost to you. Once again, thank you to Professor Harriet F. Senny for joining us and for helping us think in a new way about how we memorialize the people we lose through public art. Please remember to visit her website, harrietfsenny.com. That last name again is S-E-N-I-E. I hope you'll join us next time for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave a review. I hope you'll touch base with us on Twitter at HistoryDean or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. Stop back here again for Classical Wisdom Wednesday, History in Five Friday, 
or next Monday's all-new interview. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and happy reading. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east, sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.